0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 139 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers and research of those living a life in ruins. I am your host, Carlton Gover. And today I am joined by Dr. Joe Watkins, one of the foundational and leading scholars of indigenous archaeologies. Joe, it is an absolute delight to have you on the show. How are you doing this evening?
1: I am doing great, actually. I'm sitting in my office in Tucson, Arizona, having spent the last six months in Sapporo, Japan. I head back to Sapporo Wednesday morning at 5 a.m. for another five months of being rather isolated, at least conversationally, because people there, they may speak English, but they don't really speak English. Unless it's kind of pulled out of them, so much of the time, I walk around Sapporo with my head down with a a very specific uh, location in mind. So I'm glad to be back in the u s at least for the last three weeks. excellent. that's that's amazing. I guess, like just what are you what are you doing in Sapporo, Japan,
0: that has you out there for so long?
1: I'm a visiting professor at Hokkaido University in the Global Station for Indigenous Studies and Cultural Diversity. It's a five-year project looking at trying to increase Eastern, East Asian understanding of what indigenous archaeology is. So I'm there for a year kind of helping out with the, the Global Station, trying to provide some background to try to help the um, indigenous population of Hokkaido, the Ainu, better understand how archaeology works, how it might be used to help them tell their story of the past, but also try to help the Japanese population better understand what, what it means to be indigenous and so forth. So it's a rather amorphous project, rather large in in many circumstances, but challenging and a lot of fun whenever it it comes together well.
0: Awesome. Does it look like it's going to have a bright future? You think it's going to have a substantial impact on on the field?
1: I think it might. I I think it will have some impact there in Japan. Currently, the probably 95% of the Japanese population doesn't realize that the Ainu still exist, Uh, And I think that probably the majority of people who know anything about the Ainu are people who have read the uh, graphic novel The Golden Kamui, which sort of uh, has provided some information about the Ainu culture from the 1830s up until the 1880s or so. But beyond that, I think many people at least in japan don't realize that there is a very separate distinct indigenous population there
0: all right that seems pretty similar to maybe some uh, americans living on the east coast not realizing <laughs> that there's still indigenous people here in the americas well other than being this uh, visiting uh, scholar and professor for the uh, is there an acronym for the global institution for collaborative research
1: and education gi yeah. gi core it, it well, GI Core is the another large program, but GSI it's a Global Station for Indigenous Studies and Cultural Diversity. So GSI, SCR, we just call it GSI Global Station.
0: All right, uh, gotcha. And and with that, you're also still a core team member for the Murals of America Project, and are you still an associate faculty at the University of Arizona and and Simon Fraser?
1: Yes, I've been involved with uh, the University of Arizona since we moved here in 2018. Uh, That was one of the first things I did was to go to the School of Anthropology. I had quite a few colleagues there and asked if I could be involved so that I could perhaps help out with students if they have any questions or concerns, uh, gain access, of course, to the online library system, and try to find a way to to help out some of the colleagues that I've worked with in the past. I, I work, again, with George Nicholas up at Simon Fraser University. We were involved with a, a church, uh project in Canada called uh, iPinch, in intellectual property rights in indigenous cultural heritage, that was a a large program that George Nicholas and a large group of us got together to look at the idea of intellectual property, uh, whether cultural heritage could be protected under existing intellectual property laws, or, or whether new laws would need to be constructed, and then looking at working with tribes and first Nations to help better understand their ideas and concerns about cultural heritage so it's I, when I look at all the things I've been associated with over the past ten years it it scares me I, I I don't remember half of it until I start looking at it and then it was like, oh yeah, we did that and and we did that and oh yeah, that was a lot of fun so it's been a tremendous i would say the last 15 years
0: i mean just looking at your your record i think it's been like a tremendous like 30 years i mean you've been all over at so many different institutions contributing to the field in so many different ways not only at a, a us context but clearly a global one and you know you're one of the in, in the U.S. especially, one of the foundational scholars of, of indigenous archaeology, and you started your collegiate education back in the 70s at University of, uh, of Oklahoma. And, and at that time, especially, we've had a number of indigenous archaeologists on, on the show, and most of them are, you know, in their 20s, 30s, and we all, you know, Watkins is always referenced in anybody's work or, or mentioned as someone that we rely on for a lot of our work. In the 70s, what got you into wanting to study anthropology back then?
1: Well, I got really interested in archaeology when I was 10 years old. My grandmother and I were walking on the family homestead in southeastern Oklahoma and I found a, an archaic projectile point, maybe four to 6,000 years old. And I showed it to my grandmother, and she let it be known that it was not the deep history of the Choctaw Nation, but rather it was a history of the people who lived there before the Choctaws were moved there in the 1840s. So I, I kind of kept that in the back of my head. I initially wanted to be a paleontologist, but when I realized I wasn't going to be able to go to China and dig up dinosaur nests, I decided that, well, archaeology gave me that same sort of a thrill. So, interesting, I graduated from high school in 1969, started school at the University of Oklahoma in the latter part of August of 1969. And that happened to be the same month that Vine DeLoya published some excerpts of his book, Custer Died for Your Sins, in uh, Playboy magazine. Of course, I, I really like, tell people. What? <laughs> yes, uh, uh, it was. He, he did a, an excerpt of anthropologists and other friends in Playboy magazine, August issue of 1969. So I read that. I read the book, and here I was, an American Indian student, planning on going into archaeology. And yet I was having to list off all the things that Vine Deloria was writing about and say, yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. Archaeologists do present themselves as if they know everything and that the tribal people don't. And yes, well, uh, there have been some very crazy archaeologists who have a tendency to go out and dig up anything and everything they can. Uh, but I kind of felt at that time that if things were going to change, that perhaps they needed to be uh, changed from the inside out. So I, I dealt with being in the middle from the time I started my archaeology classes in 1969 and still quite often and in the middle at this point in time, still trying to help anthropologists better understand why indigenous people have concern with the the discipline and trying to help indigenous people understand the ways to which anthropology and archaeology can be used to help at least the general population uh, better understand how things can be seen from different perspectives. So I got to know Vine Deloria after I moved to the University of New Mexico in 2001 and 2002 and got him to autograph two copies of my Playboy magazine uh, of his articles. So I have those. And Ultimately, it was Vine Gloria who set me on my path toward my my dissertation research to look at how archaeologists perceive American Indian issues about archaeology here in North America. So, uh, and I told him numerous times how much I thanked him for making me stop and think about what it is that I had hoped to do and ultimately what it is I did accomplish.
0: Absolutely. So, I mean, coming in the field in the 70s, especially at that time, at the OU Anthro Department, were you one of the only indigenous students
1: present? I believe there was, I I know there was a South American Indian student. There were a couple of American Indian students but they were primarily either in linguistics or in cultural anthropology. There weren't any in archaeology. The archaeologists didn't really believe that an American Indian could be uh, subjective enough to do good archaeology. They always thought that we could not erase our cultural background and our cultural baggage to provide a very subjective interpretation of the archaeological record. And nowadays, I think that's what they're trying to to tell us we need to do more of. But this was 50 years ago. It's I I really hesitate to think of it being 50 years because I only feel like I'm about 35 at this point.
0: And, and that's crazy. And they felt like at that time that they were capable of, of being that non-biased themselves towards the archaeological record?
1: I, I think they really thought they were. You know, they were doing science. They were doing things that could be repeated. They were doing excavations and recording them in such a way that other people could come along and possibly reconstruct everything that they had done so that the idea was that the archaeological record was clean, uh, and that they didn't really consider their own biases and it really wasn't until Bruce Trigger started writing about the inherent biases within archaeology that they started thinking about, well, maybe we need to do this differently so interesting times i I do know that I did not speak up as much as I probably should have uh, I, I I remember sometimes walking out of the classroom, shaking my head, thinking, oh, if only I had said, or if only, but I I was afraid to really counter anything that the professors were saying.
0: Understood. I mean, I know people deal with that today. And, And back in the 70s, I couldn't imagine that kind of environment and and the ability to do so, or being safe enough, you know, for for you to do so. So you got your your bachelor's of arts in anthro in '73. What led you to pursue a master's in anthro and archaeology specialization at at Southern Methodist University? Why why
1: did you choose SMU? Well, I always wanted to do old world archaeology. So the summer between my junior and senior year, 1972, I was lucky enough to get on a field school with Francois Bord in France, in the Dordogne region of France with Les Ais and it was a tremendous experience. Got to see Lascaux, de Gom, all many, many major rock art sites and cave painting sites. A tremendous, tremendous opportunity. And, and you know, I really, at that time, wanted to work in the old world because I, I wasn't going to excavate American Indian burials and American Indian skeletons. So a part of me just sort of was thinking, well, I should go to Europe and, and dig up their ancestors and see how well they like it. Didn't have the same impact because, uh, one, I, we never found any human remains, and Francois board was, was such a great joker that he always used to kid me that his ancestors ate buffalo before mine did. So we, <laughs> we, we had a, a great joking relationship and he, he turned out to be a good friend as well. So I wanted to do old world archaeology. I didn't want to go to California. I checked out the University of Missouri, because they had a fairly strong program. And then one of my professors said, well, you should check down at Southern Methodist University, because they had a good North African and Sub-Saharan African programs, uh, very strong programs. Of course, I, I, I knew I couldn't afford to go to graduate school, but I thought I would kind of check things out anyway. But I was walking through the the library at the University of Oklahoma just before December break in 1972. And there was a small little poster that said, Ford Foundation Grants for American Indians. And I thought, huh. So I I took some information, went back to my room, and actually applied and got very lucky. In, In January, I flew... Got to Tucson for an interview and was lucky to get a a full one year scholarship with tuition fees and living expenses paid to pursue my degree. Uh, it was a, a, an extreme bit of luck. <laughs> I, I admit uh, that I I know that had I not found that piece of paper and that announcement, had I not applied, I would never have accomplished 95% of the things that I've been able to just because that little degree, that piece of paper has made such a great deal of difference, both the, the master's degree and then later on going back and completing the PhD.
0: Yeah. So there, there's, there's quite a gap. So you got your, your master's in, in 77. Right. What did you do after you got your master's degree?
1: I went to work for the federal government in Atlanta for a year and a half and worked for Archaeological Services, IAS, Interagency Archaeological Services in Atlanta. They decided they wanted to reorganize and asked if I wanted to move to Michigan. And I said, I did not want to move to Michigan. So I, I resigned my position, having been there for 18 months moved back to Oklahoma City, developed a consulting firm, did some consulting for a couple of years. Oil field was just beginning to, to blossom and boom, but I just couldn't find work. So I went to work for Oklahoma Indian Legal Services as an office manager, then became assistant manager of a legal services program there in Oklahoma City. was there for two years. Uh, moved to Taos, worked at Millicent Rogers Museum for a couple of years. Mainly, I, I did a lot of different things that were not archaeology. I, I had gotten a little burnt out. I was a little angry because some of the professional archaeologists that I had been dealing with were anything but professional. They were sort of undercutting their competition. They were doing projects that they couldn't really make money on, but they just didn't want other people to have the work and they were trying to develop a following. So, from basically 1979, uh, maybe 1980 through 1990, I was just doing bits and pieces of things. In 1991, I went. To work for the University of Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma Archaeological Survey, worked there for three years, and then started working for the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Anadarko. And I, I loved that job. I was there for 10 years. Actually, I think I started there in 1990 at the beginning of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And I remember working with tribes here in Oklahoma as they started getting boxes and boxes of summaries and inventories of Native American human remains, funerary objects, sacred objects, objects of cultural patrimony from museums in response to NAGPRA. So that was a busy time.
0: <laughs> I'm- I bet. And for our listeners, NAGPRA is the Native American Graves Protection Repatriation Act of 1990, which was a law signed by George Bush and uh, basically forced federally funded museums and institutions to repatriate objects of cultural patrimony back to, to federally recognized tribes. And so that was a big move, and it kind of stems off of the American Religious Freedoms Act of 1970? yeah, 1978. 1978, which basically, yeah. And so uh, a, huge, a huge time in that Really, uh, kind of created forced collaboration between institutions and archaeologists with indigenous communities, and right. a lot of archaeologists and museum professionals at that time thought uh, NAGPRA was just going to be a clearinghouse, and tribes are going to come in and take mm-hmm. take everything, and that has been shown to be be untrue. My fallback is to go to the BIA. If archaeology doesn't work out, I think that's where I'm I'm going is is to work with the BIA, just like every everyone else in my family.
1: But. Uh, yeah, well. The BIA has done some good things, and they've done some very terrible things. But it's, as with any governmental agency, there are good people in it, and there are some people who just want to beat Indians away. I had the good fortune to work with some good people, and they uh, they allowed me time to actually work on my dissertation while I was in office. If I had gotten all my surveys done, all my reports done, if there wasn't anything that really had to be done, they allowed me to take some writing time in my office. So being able to complete that in 1994 was, you know, that was a a big thing for me, recognizing that in my brain, the PhD didn't mean anything, but to people outside of in the other world, it, it made a great deal of difference.
0: Absolutely. So your dissertation titled Ethics and Value Conflicts, Analysis of Archaeologists' Responses to Questionnaire Scenarios Concerning the Relationship Between American Indians and Archaeologists, uh, which you then published in, did you get that published in Plains Anthropologist? Yeah. Volume um, 44, 99, issue 170.
1: Yeah, I, I published just a, a sort of a summary chapter in it. Uh, looking at basically some of the statistics that I had used to talk about how archaeologists tended to view concerns. If it was on private property, archaeologists felt that tribes shouldn't have any say. If it was on federal property, archaeologists felt that as long as laws were being followed, then sure, it was okay to listen to tribes. And if it was on tribal property, archaeologists Understood that the the tribes should have the the ultimate say over it. So there was some some t- statistical things that showed up, but in the long run, basically the, the biggest thing was the land ownership was what the archaeologists felt should be driving it. Nothing to do with ethics or anything else.
0: Interesting. And do you think if you because you you sent that questionnaire out between November 1991 and April 1993? If it had been maybe like four years earlier, do you think your responses would have been different? Or because the results of your survey were really just showing it was, it was just land rather than ethics, do you think it would have just been the same if you had done it in the late 80s before NAGPRA was passed?
1: I think it probably would have been very similar if it had been conducted in the, the late 80s because what I believe is that there is sort of a generational effect that the archaeologists who had been who were trained at a time when archaeology was basically free form, that the tribes did not have a great deal of consulting power, that I believe that the archaeologists still would have felt that they only would have followed what the law required. I think if that survey were done now, or at least say at the turn of the century, things would have been different because we are seeing a generational change. We're seeing that students who have taken classes and have learned about archaeology after repatriation, after NAGPRA, and after the National Museum of the American Indian Act are much more forward in looking at conversations with tribes and recognizing that tribes should have a say about how How archaeology is practiced I think that eventually we won't be having these same sorts of conversations because the conversations will be in history books about the way things used to be rather than the way things are
0: excellent and on that note we're gonna go ahead and take a break here on segment one we'll be right back pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra And in the next segment, we're going to talk to uh, Doctor Watkins about his experiences and what we were just talking about—paradigm shifts in archaeology over the past couple of decades and some of those key transitions that he's been a part of. So we'll be right back after these messages. And welcome back to segment two of episode 139. We are here with Doctor Joe Watkins. So Joe, what, what's awesome to me is is looking back in um, in the field in the past really fifty-six years, which you haven't been a part of the field quite that long. But you came in as an undergraduate in the 70s, right during the height of new archaeology, which is, as you alluded to in that first segment, that's when archaeology under proponents, especially like Lewis Binford, were really promoting archaeology as a hard science that was very much being pushed on statistics and data collection and this idea of removing any bias that you have and just just looking at the looking at the data and as uh you you've grown in the in the career and profession um there's been a lot of of different changes i mean we touched on like the passage passage of nagpra in particular in the in the in in the 90s but you got to see the post-processual critique or the or archaeology's version of postmodernism creep in where archaeologists hotter being a big name of course trying to deconstruct or critique that scientific approach and try to have people really think about more abstract ideas and not just worry about the numbers, but think about things of culture, kinship, gender. What was it like to be an archeologist during that time, especially one that was growing in the career as a, as an early professional?
1: In some ways it was a difficult time because if you try to approach study of humans, without thinking about being human, it, it makes it difficult for me. It was like believing that someone could create a computer program that could tell you everything you needed to know about the past. It's just not possible. So as I was reading Benford and his discussions about how if we do this and if we don't do that, uh, then we can create a clean science that will give us the answers to the past or it will help us better understand how we can influence the future with what we're saying or what we're writing. I struggled with that because I always felt that we needed to be talking about humans. I I never really thought that there were pottery types that moved across the landscape, changing from cord marked to cut marked to incised, you know, I... I kept thinking, well, people are doing this, not pieces of pottery. And projectile points don't happen to populate the landscape. People do. So what causes people to change their ideas? Is it some sort of identity? We only make projectile points that look like everybody else in my family makes projectile points. And so to me, that removed the idea that it was scientific as much as it was humanistic. So, you know, I had to, in many times, write papers in such a tongue-in-cheek way that my professors didn't understand that I was being a little, yeah, uh, <laughs> that I, I had to act like I really believed what it, what I was spouting back on paper. And... and to me, that wasn't really a good way to, to practice archaeology. Uh, I, I got lucky in that 19, early 1970s was also a time when salvage archaeology, cultural resource management, started happening much more fully. Some archaeologists were doing surveys for, for highway departments for the states, and their, much of their research was very basic. You, you go out, you collect the data, you find the archaeological sites, you craft reports, you give them to the agency that needs the information, and then you step back. You might interpret it if you want to pull together a presentation for a conference But generally, it was just very basic archaeology. And and so I learned a bit of that. Uh, I learned how to create basic archaeology that other people could use if they wanted to start looking at broader pictures. I I really wasn't a big picture person. I'm sorry to say I I was very much an, an Oklahoma person who just wanted to say what I needed to say in the classroom to get through the classes, to get my degree so that I could get out and do something. I, I remember discussions with other archaeologists in a few I, I don't want to say saloons uh, in a few <laughs> circumstances where conversation was lubricated. Uh, And some of those conversations either evolved or devolved into shouting matches with people saying, well, archaeology has got to be science. And others saying, no, archaeology is anthropology or it's nothing. Or archaeology is nothing more than something that we do because we feel good about what it is. Some of them didn't see any utility for archaeology. Many of the, the tribal people that I knew said that, you know, they they didn't believe in it. They they had their own histories. They had their own stories. They didn't need archaeologists to tell them something that they already knew. So it, it was, looking back, I do admit, it was a lot of fun. Uh, there were times when I, I knew just how to twist a, a word or a phrase to to make a friend of mine angry or, or at least uh, have him look at me as if I were crazy. So I was not at that time, I didn't think that I had anything worth saying. So I, I didn't speak at conferences. I didn't give presentations. I didn't really write anything until I Till after I had my MA, I was just very much uh, focused on completing the degree and trying not to make too many waves.
0: Yeah. I mean, you certainly did that Did that a little bit later. And and so as, as you're doing your PhD, right, NAGPRA gets passed in 1990. You send your survey out. And as a result of, of NAGPRA, you have Roger Echo Hawk and Larry Zimmerman working together to figure out how repatriation is going to work. And they draw on... Oral traditions to identify cultural affiliation, and they're doing this practice of incorporating indigenous knowledge. But it's not until your book in two thousand, Indigenous Archaeology, that comes out where you you provide a name for that approach, it being Indigenous Archaeology. So what was, I mean, that's such a foundational a book. And what was your what was the impetus for you for you writing it and and getting it out there? Because you know, in the first time you talked about how you had flack from some of your professors. They didn't think you were, you were too native to do the science <laughs> unbiased. And now you come out like two decades later with like, here's a whole book on why my indigenous perspectives and ontologies matter for, for uh, doing this. And, it, and it's an inclusive approach. Not just Indians can do indigenous archaeology, but everyone can in a collaborative manner.
1: I, I think it was a long time in, in germinating I was a part of the 10 consultations that were held about the American Indian Religious Freedom Act in 1978 and 1979. And during those consultations, I got to, to sit around with Bunky Echohawk, Walter Echohawk, um, and a, a lot of very outspoken, forceful, very intelligent indigenous people across the United States, tribal members, attorneys, people who had ideas that they had thought about for 20, 30 years, and they'd been given the opportunity with these consultations to talk about the importance of protecting Native American human remains, the importance of recognizing archaeological sites as places of the past sacred areas, areas of importance to existing tribal people, and not just areas of importance to science or to archaeologists. So with that as a background, when I completed my PhD and started looking at what I had learned from the questionnaires and the conversations I had had with people, I thought it was important that to try to find some way to increase the conversation. I was at the Chakmul Conference in Canada and was sitting down and had a, a very long conversation with Brian Fagan. We were talking about dissertations and thesis and writing, and he said that he felt that I should try to find a publisher and try to see if I had something I wanted to say. So I, I knew Mitch Allen at... Um, used to be at Altamira Press and then ultimately Left Coast Press and he and I talked and he helped me better craft it in such a way that might have impact my initial title was toward an indigenous archaeology and he said no we don't want to go toward something we want to start something right now and the 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 term indigenous archaeology two previous uses, in the past, indigenous archaeology really meant just the archaeology of indigenous people. So that was the the initial meaning of it. But George Nicholas uh, and Thomas Andrews uh, published a book in 1989, I think it is, called At a Crossroads. It's about archaeology in Canada and its relationships with Canadian First Nations. And in the introduction footnote, I think it's footnote number four, they talk about indigenous archaeology. And they say, here, we define indigenous archaeology as archaeology by, with, and for indigenous populations. So I borrowed the term from, from George and Thomas. And they weren't put out that I borrowed the term because I, I do give them credit for the definition and and for the use of it. But I think I happened to be at the right place at the right time with everything that had come out, everything that had happened with the development of the tribal historic preservation programs, changes to the National Historic Preservation Act that gave tribes much more power, the basically 10-year anniversary of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, all those things happening at at a time when people were already listening to tribal voices in many different ways many different concerns. So it was, again, I, I consider myself to have been very lucky and to be in the right place at the right time. And to be able to tell a story that some people needed to hear, and that other people really wanted told. Gotcha.
0: I mean, to the year two thousand was pretty pretty interesting because your book came out. You have Roger's article about um, oral traditions coming out as well as a case study for you know looking at oral traditions at like you would any other sort of historical data and, and critically analyzing those for factual information, but. You still had some holdouts that weren't very thrilled with the approach. Mason come comes to mind. So I mean, like I couldn't imagine you know, looking back at your career and the amount of of crap you've you've gone through from from the profession, starting you know as an undergraduate at OU up until you know the early the turn of the millennium as as it's almost been, it's been a decade after NACPRS passed, we're starting to see some non-forced collaborations and people (laughs) like seeing the utility of working collaboratively as equal partners with shared power with indigenous communities. And you're writing along with others to get the field going. Like, you know what, when you, when you see these reactionary critical approaches to what you're doing in, in the 2000s, what, what's your own reaction as, as you You're dealing with the the critics of of the approach of indigenous archaeology.
1: I I I try not to have too much of a reaction when people raise concerns about indigenous archaeology. To me, it's the conversation that's as much as important as what is being written or what is being said. Because as an undergraduate, I, I was I would read the readings. And I really didn't question critically what the writers were saying. I I didn't know enough to say uh, I disagree with what this person said. But I, I like the fact that people can discuss these things in a forum. And I find that it really helps graduate students and undergraduate students better understand that there's more than one answer. There's definitely more than one truth. There's more than one way of looking at things of different perspectives. To me, I, I I like controversy in that regard, so long as they're not ad hominem attacks, and so long as people are willing to at least accept that others have perspectives that are just as valid. In the past, American Indians weren't given the opportunity to really give their perspective. Far be it for me to believe that anyone should be censored and not be allowed to, to give their opinion. You know, I, I've been very concerned about occasional practices of censorships. And even if I do not agree with the person who was making the particular statement, I still feel that it's important for that statement to get published so that students can at least recognize that, yes, some people have opinions that may be a little bit outdated now, and some people have some opinions that I don't agree with, but I, I do believe it's important for others to understand why they feel they have those opinions. I admit that when I first read Mason and others, I feel like I would just shake my head and say, that's not what we're saying. That's not what we intend for this to be. We are not saying that this information is the only correct information. We are saying that, you know, as scientists, we're taught to have multiple working hypotheses, and to preclude one just because it comes from a tribal person is is senseless. It, it's non. It's not good science. So ultimately, I think the conversation is much more important than what is being said.
0: All right, that's that's incredibly well put. And as you're kind of. You know, part of my dissertation was like, I have a whole chapter on, you know, indigenous archaeology. That's the longest chapter that I have (laughs) out of all of this. And, you know, really, you know, recently having gone through the literature and and even though some of those conversations like Mason, McGee, or even more contemporary, Weiss, it's, it's really been hard for me personally to not take those critiques personally. Uh, Cause so much of my being an indigenous archaeologist and the work that I do is, is so personal to me. And so it, it feels like a personal attack and it, it's, it's been like difficult to separate as you were saying, like, now we're in a space where we can respond and that we do, we, we can interact with these folks in a professional way, but it, it's still, you know, struggling not to hold my research close to my chest and kind of, you know, keep it at a distance and and be able to have those conversations without feeling like a personal attack. It's, and I know a, a, other, you know, young indigenous scholars are struggle with those same reactions of reading some of these folks. Cause you read mason mcgee and you're like how are you getting this idea that that joe chip and and george and roger are advocating for just only listen to indigenous archaeologists the oral traditions are the only things that matter it's just like really like why were those kind of not you know frameworks coming from that they're so afraid of of bringing indigenous people to the to the table
1: yeah it it can get concerning and it can get painful at times i i i recognize that There are some people who take this so very personally because they hold it so very dearly and so very deeply within themselves. It is part of who they are. And so to believe that a colleague or someone who is supposed to be a colleague is attacking and does not see the utility of at least thinking about alternatives Uh, It gets frustrating. It gets scary. I I have known some people who have been very angry for a long time at a lot of different people because they could never let it go. And to me, anger can become counterproductive. It it will color everything that one writes, everything that one reads. Interpretations uh, become skewed toward anger or, or toward the, the worst, rather than trying to give someone the benefit of the doubt. And, and I admit that's not the person I am. I, I, I don't get angry often. I, I've been angry a couple of times, and I, I never email anything that I've written that I'm, when I'm angry. I, I know better than that.
0: Absolutely, that's a sage advice for everybody. You know, it's you know, it, you can't take back something once you hit send. That's why I've uh, got some really good advice from my dissertation chair. You know, he's like, you know, whatever you want to write when you're angry, put it in you know Apple Notes first, and then put it away because then you can't yep. send it. You know, so I I totally understand that. K- kind of moving away from from the early 2000s as as indigenous archaeologists and more people have, have begun using it as a methodological and theoretical framework and just becoming, you know, a practice. And we've seen the, um, you know, Keisha Supernot, um, Sarah mm-hmm. Gonzalez, Sonia Adelaide, and these other figures kind of come in and begin to use the, to, to contribute in meaningful ways to, to the literature As we moved into the, the 2010s. I guess like now that I've seen, you know, first we've talked about, the dismissal of indigenous beliefs, forced collaboration, people beginning to use it. But now I, I've seen experiences where it's it's kind of being like collaboration is now like a checkbox you have to fulfill rather than something you you want or should do. It's kind of like now everyone wants to do it or, or says they do it. How do you navigate that space as, as an indigenous scholar with kind of seeing now – I I don't even know how to describe the approach because it's not necessarily the genuine collaboration. It's now having to do it in order to get a job or to get the research approved. Like, how do you figure out those who are genuinely meaningful and working with and for Indigenous communities rather than doing it for their own personal gain?
1: It's very difficult to figure out. I, I agree with you. I've noticed that there are people who, talk about collaboration, and they talk about reaching out to tribal folk to to get their opinion on certain things. Often, that collaboration really is with one or two tribal individuals. It's not a, a full collaboration in terms of working with, I hate to, it's difficult to say on a tribal level, but I think that there are a lot of people who have found people who will work with them and they welcome them as their collaborator. And so in some ways, it is a hollow action because many researchers know what they want. uh, And so what they want is to collaborate with someone who will let them do what they want to do. Rather than asking the question, I would like to work with you in a way that will be beneficial to you and your tribe? How can I help you? And there are some of those. A colleague that I work with in Japan, Hirofumi Kato, has been very much that type of a person, that he would like to work with the Ainu communities on Hokkaido Island to help them find a way to make the Japanese population more aware of their issues, contemporary issues, as well as the their historic and their history issues. So he's very much involved in trying to find ways to collaborate with the Ainu community. But as with here in the United States, part of the issue is defining that community. Which community are do you work with? Are you working with, say, in the United States? Under federal law, you have to work with the elected officials. And the elected officials can allow you to work with traditional leaders, or they can tell you, yes, you need to work with traditional leaders, but you need to work with us as well. And sometimes traditional leaders are almost diametrically opposed to elected officials because they each have different jobs. Uh, Elected officials, their job is to basically see to the economic health of the tribe. Traditional leaders, very often, their role and responsibility is to see to the religious, social, and metaphysical health of the tribe. And so they each have different spheres through which they should be working. So collaboration if it's meant to be needs to start from the individual out. I've had people again that I know who have said I have this great project that I want to do but I can't get any tribe interested in it. Uh, rather than saying this tribe wants me to do this project. And I I don't know if I can do it because I'm not really interested in it, rather than saying, this tribe wants me to do this project. And I think I can find something of interest on my own to help fulfill or fill out the project. And many people just don't have the necessary experience to help it move beyond just that very uh, superficial level it's a difficult thing to do
0: absolutely i know it's been now that i'm on a the graduate committee for iu and i'm I'm getting to look at graduate applications and having those conversations of seeing people apply or want to do collaborative projects or do indigenous archaeology it's like if you are a master student, how in the hell in, in two years are you going to build a meaningful relationship with the community to do that approach? Because in an in indigenous archaeological approach, one that is for, by, and with indigenous communities, like that's a lifelong commitment, and and one as you said, where the tribe has the power, and and basically, you know, they tell you what they want, and that's been something. I haven't, you know, with, with my own community back in Pawnee, you know, they, they've asked me to do stuff and I've kind of drop everything to go, to go do it. Cause at the end of the day, that's who all my work's for everything that I want to do. You know, that's, that comes separate as, as an indigenous person. Like I'm a servant to the Pawnee nation. Right. Like that's my role. Like I don't have a, I don't have a choice. Like I do what they tell me to do.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And in many ways, that's why it's important for there to be tribal people indigenous archaeologists people who do have those long-term relationships that can help master students uh, understand how the process works that can perhaps try to help the master students be a part of ongoing projects so that they can learn how it works and maybe even develop some short-term uh, relationships that they can parlay on down the line in, into something long-term. It was very difficult for, for the majority of the first generation of indigenous archaeologists to try to find those mentors, to find the people that could help them better understand how these things work, and to give them positive um, examples to, to follow through. Larry Zimmerman is is one of my favorite examples. He's one of my favorite people. George Nicholas is another one of my favorite people. They are just tremendous people who have gone out of their way to make things happen, to help other people move more fully along and to move this discipline, this field on further along.
0: The first time I met Larry, I was so excited. It was at the SAA Native Reception in Albuquerque, and I I walked up, and I was like, Dr. Zimmerman, my name's Carlton Gover. I'm a a Pawnee archaeologist, and he just like shook his head. He's like, not another goddamn Pawnee, and I just started (laughs) laughing. But yeah, all right. So, all right, everyone, we'll be right back with segment three of the Life and podcast here with uh, Dr. Joe Watkins, and we're back here at episode 139, so... Kind of capping, capping this off, Doctor Watkins. In this last segment, what are some current research projects and publications you got in the works for the next round of uh, indigenous archaeologies in, in, in the decade of 2020?
1: Well, I first started working in Hokkaido in 2007, so I've been going back and forth there 15 and a half years. When I first got back from Hokkaido in 2007, I said, I'm going to write a book. And the title of the book is Indigenizing Japan. Basically, it's the history of Japanese relationships with the Ainu community of Hokkaido and Honshu. So for the last 15 years, I have been talking about, I have been saving articles. I've been talking to people and looking at things. So... My one year in Hokkaido was theoretically was so that I could write this book, so that I could get it finished. But for the last six months, I've been doing a lot of other things. I've given a couple of presentations to a a couple of Ainu communities on uh, tribal membership, tribal enrollment, looking at tribal economic development of the Choctaw Nation, and all these things that the the Ainu various Ainu communities are interested in so for the next 6 months i hope to be completing that book or at least a manuscript of that book that i can take to a publisher right now there's very few english volumes on the Ainu. There are a couple from the late 80s and early 90s. There are quite a few on archaeology, the Jomon pottery or or um, Hokkaido uh, archaeology, but there's really nothing that pulls together the the deep history of the Japanese archipelago, the development of the archaeological cultures that have become historically known as the Ainu. And there's some archaeological cultures, uh, Satsuman, Okost, and, and other cultures that are probably recognizable as the precursors of the historic Ainu. But right now, the general Japanese population has no understanding of what those archaeological cultures really mean. So I am hoping to be able to provide a, a manuscript written in such a way that it will serve the English reading culture well, but also might be translatable into Japanese so that the general population of Japan can have a better understanding of what it means to be Ainu, what it has meant historically to be Ainu, and what contemporary Ainu populations in Hokkaido and on Honshu, the kind of discrimination they currently encounter and have encountered in the past. So that's my big project. Otherwise, I have some smaller writing projects, uh, chapters on looking at how More recently, excavations at Cooper's Ferry in Idaho uncovered some projectile points about 16,000 years old that the excavator said, oh, they look like the Jomon projectile points from Hokkaido. So people are now starting to say, oh, well, Paleo-Indian probably came from Hokkaido again, Uh, much like during the case of the ancient one, when um, some people said, oh well, maybe the most closest living population of the ancient one are the Ainu so I, I'll be giving a presentation and a writing a paper about the problems of trying to create false dichotomies using technologies and and trying to say them in such a way that they become, too dumbed down to where people make some really far reaching interpretations of what they mean. So again, trying to help archaeologists better say what they mean instead of saying sound bites too often.
0: Understood. Do the Ainu have stories of like relatives that kept that kept going east?
1: No, none that I have been able to determine. Many of the Ainu stories were collected in the 1890s by missionaries, 1880s, 1890s. There are some other Ainu stories that have been collected. There are some individuals who maintain some of the Ainu stories, but many of those stories talk about, as with many tribal members, creation in place that they were created in place by the the Kamuis, the, the gods above. And so the I think some of what the current genetic information is saying is that oh possibly thirty thousand years ago there was a population that split apart that one group uh, moved to the south and east uh, along uh, Kamchatka, Sahalin, into that area which is now called Hokkaido. And that population eventually became the group that we currently call the Ainu. There was some other genetic in-mixing in there, but at least the base population probably came somewhere from Siberia, Lake Bakal, that area. And another branch of that population moved to the north and the east and became a group of the population that contributed to the populations that we now recognize as Native American. There's, there's been genetic change. There's been time there was some sort of a, genetically, they believe there was a time when the population actually lived in Beringia in, on the land bridge for a, a long enough period of time that they stopped interacting with other populations. Uh, right now, the, the genetics, I don't think we know enough yet. The genetics is giving us some very broad strokes, but we don't have a large enough population to be really assured that what we're saying is true. Most of these are derived from individuals and our individual genomes and genetics are questionable at best. Still, it helps flesh out that story of 40,000 years ago. But So long as we don't believe it is the story or the only story, I have no problems thinking about genetics as another chapter to kind of help us tell the stories.
0: Understood. One thing I did want to talk to you about is uh, this being and becoming indigenous archaeologist, which was first edited by uh, George Nicholas, came out in 2010, and that had it's a compilation of indigenous archaeologists talking about why and what they do as indigenous archaeologists, and, and you were a contributor to that, and there was only 36 contributors on, on in the 2010 volume, and you and, and George are coming out with a, a sequel. So how many indigenous archaeologists, and, and and for those listening, it's not just North American indigenous, but there are folks from South America, Africa, Polynesia, in that, in that first one. So what, I guess two questions, what made you and George decide to come out with a a second volume and, and how many contributors have you guys wrangled in for this one?
1: Initially, George said that he felt that there are still so many people out there whose stories need to be told that we recognize the initial book provided a lot of mentors for others, people who could better understand and recognize that, much of the issues that they are encountering in grad school or getting the degrees, uh, they're not the only ones in the world who have experienced those, who have had the same questions or have been told the same thing. So George decided that time was right to, to start the second edition. I think we currently have 43, 44 chapters that we are working with. Uh, we have maybe... 15 or 20 others that we had contacted who told us that it was not a good time for them to be able to participate, but that if Volume 3 ever comes about, they would like for us to contact them again. We don't know what we're going to get until we finish it. (laughs) One of the issues is that we recognize that for some people, like we have a couple of authors who are writing from South Africa, who don't recognize indigenous in the same way that we do, uh, in that they don't recognize indigenous as meaning the first people of an area because they've seen the way indigenous has been used in a political sense to take land away from probably from people who should have had access to it. So it's been seen as a political term in some circumstances. So we have started by not defining the term indigenous. George and I will create a forward which will discuss all the different aspects of indigenous indigeneity and how it varies across the globe. And I think that's one thing that many people don't recognize or don't realize is the different perspectives that people bring about what it means to be indigenous. Some people say, I'm not indigenous, I'm Choctaw, or I'm Sami. So, or, you know, again, as most of us, we identify with tribe first, and then we have one author who's sister ridiculed him when he said that he was indigenous because she said, you're not indigenous, you're this tribe. And um, so he doesn't really claim to be indigenous because he's tribal. So we, we have all sorts of different people who are offering all sorts of different perspectives about what it means to be of the blood, if you will, in various countries, various areas. So we keep looking. We continue to look. We ask people if they know of individuals who, whose story would help illuminate things in their country. Uh, we are still woefully underrepresented both in South America and, and in Africa. We need more people from Northern Europe, the Fino-Scandinavian countries, Australia is fairly well represented. Uh, New Zealand, Aotearoa is fairly well represented, but we recognize that until we can get a hundred authors that we really have to cut back on, then we'll need to keep looking.
0: Well, all right. And so uh, kind of rounding out this interview, what is your vision or hope, or what do you see happening with indigenous archaeologies coming up in the future?
1: Ah, good question. Just, what,
0: yeah, what are you excited about? You know,
1: <laughs> I, I think that the things that the future I see for indigenous archaeology is exciting. In that, in some ways, I'm hoping, uh, as other people have written in the past. Uh, so it's not just my uh, hope. I'm hoping that indigenous archaeology stops being something exciting. I hope it becomes something that is so everyday, so ho-hum that people do indigenous archaeology without thinking that it's somehow different from archaeology, general archaeology. I like the idea of questioning whether or not it's still needed, whether the at what point in time will the next generation or the generation of archaeologists after that have it so ingrained that working with tribal people is what you do, collaborating, communicating, consulting, all these things that you do on a day-to-day basis, that's that's normal archaeology. And so I'm hoping that eventually my book, Indigenous Archaeology, sort of falls to dust. And I I, I don't care where, whether it ever gets cited again, so long as people continue to practice what other people have helped expand that idea into. It was a germ of an idea that I borrowed from George Nicholas and Thomas Andrews, and so many people have expanded it so many people have contributed to making it more understood of what today's generation of archaeologists see its utility in being. And in in those ways, it, it's not like I feel like I'm a father or a grandfather, but in some ways I feel really like it was something that, to, to quote Shakespeare, proceeded from a heat oppressed brain from Macbeth. But... Uh, it was something that had to come out at that time and i'm really glad that it's reached a point where that there are so many people practicing it that it no longer is something that is quaint
0: understood and and since i have you here you know like in the last segment you talked about these these people that you looked up to and 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 uh, George Nicholas, Larry Zimmerman and, and others. And for like my generation, like a lot of us look up to you and you know, you might not consider yourself a grandfather, but we like colloquially refer to you as uncle Joe. And, <laughs> and, and, and in my circles with the other indigenous archaeologists, it's like, what's uncle Joe and auntie Sonia up to, you know, that's kind of how <laughs> yes. we see you guys is like yes. those and not just in, you know, uh, it's in a meaningful way because you and, and the indigenous archaeologists of your generation, went through a lot from the field in the academy just to have your voice heard and and allow scholars and professionals like myself the space that we are, are way more are in a much safer and welcoming environment to practice our our archaeologies and use our tribal ontologies in our research and that might not necessarily have been possible without the the work, the difficult work, both academically, but also like mentally and emotionally that you guys had to go through to, to create this space that there's now so many more, you know, scholars of my generation from all over and all these different departments where we're now at a, at a place where you have to question people's how genuine they are in doing the collaborative work because now everyone is starting to do it and wanting to do it in a meaningful way. And, you know, and especially with this last couple of years, we're hiring indigenous anthropologists and archaeologists was, was, was a trend. That's everyone started. It was like Pokemon. You got to collect them all. Everyone <laughs> needed to have an indigenous archaeologist, you know? Um, and so, you know, I, that I have, you. I just really wanted to, to thank you for one coming on the show and like doing all that, all that work and providing the lexicon and the vocabulary and the, and, that that we use to help give ourselves a voice that, you know, as a indigenous archaeologist coming from, like we have a way of knowing and a way of doing that's sometimes hard to express or write down. And we have you and Sonia and, and Larry and others and George that we can look at your guys's work and the terms that you guys use and how you guys have done it and, and use it to express ourselves. So, I mean, it's just really uh, awesome for me to have you on and to be able to talk with you about your career and, and the research that you've done. And I hope to get to see you again in person uh, uh, eventually, but maybe when you get back from from Japan, we can meet up at a conference at some point and uh, and, and get to see uh, future collaborations and, and get some future work done, man.
1: Well, thank you, Carlton. I appreciate it. And I feel very honored to have the, the term uncle thrown at me or to me. I will be at the SAA's. We'll be flying back in, in March and April for those. So maybe we can meet up there if you're gonna be able to make it to Portland. I don't know oh, if
0: I have to. Me and Wade Campbell, uh, you know, we're uh, we're the chairs of the Committee of Native American relations now, and so we're hosting the native reception. It's on us, so we'll be We'll be there, and we got a pretty uh, we got a meeting with with folks this week that we're hosting. uh, The Portland Native Community is hosting us at the Native Center, and so we have a we have a pretty big reception that uh, we're we're looking forward to. So, way cool, excellent to have you there. But uh, so, uh, as always, before we end the show, Doctor Watkins, what are a couple sources? These could be books, articles, videos that you would recommend for anyone interested in indigenous archaeologies.
1: God, is so difficult to say. <laughs> uh, I, I, Of course, I would look at just about everything Sonia has written uh, about Chatalhöyük and, and her work with George Nicholas, uh, his encyclopedia, Articles on Indigenous Archaeology, his book on At a Crossroads, really looks at the, the origins and the relationships between the First Nations of Canada and archaeologists there anything and everything Larry Zimmerman has written. Uh, I wish I had sat down and said, I've got to mention this book and that book and everything. But, you know, there's been such a wide array of things that have been written. Chip Colwell's work on plundered skulls and the ideas of the repatriation and how things have played out. Everybody, you know, Depending on what your interest is, there's there's such a wide range of of articles and books that, for me, it's difficult to to separate out one or two or three. I think that all you have to do is type in the term that you're interested in and add indigenous archaeology to it, and you will find some tremendous readings. And we get, the good thing is we keep getting more and more each year. And I'm looking forward to, to yours coming out uh, at the end of this year. And I'm, I've been asked to play up the fact that the Smithsonian Institution's handbook on, on North American Indians just published volume one, the introduction. It just came out. I got my hard copy today. It's a free download. Um, you can download the entire volume, and they are asking us to let people know. What I will do, um, Carlton, is to send you a link, um, If you, and if you can share that with your your friends. We would like every tribal member across the United States to have it, to use it if they find utility for it. For all the THPOs, we're going try to be sending out copies. I have no idea how many are going to be sending out, but we're going to try to get it all across the United States. And that's something I'm glad to have been a part of.
0: Absolutely. And for our listeners, as always, all these resources will be accessible by a web link in the episode description, wherever you're listening to this podcast. And then where can our listeners find you on, on the web, Uh, email address or uh, social media? I mean, you look like a guy that has a TikTok account.
1: Uh, I don't do TikTok. I used to have, uh, I used to have social media. Uh, I used to tweet a little bit and I had Instagram accounts, but That went away a couple of years ago. Best place to find me, probably email jwatkins at theaceconsultants.com. And occasionally I show up on PBS or I've been writing a a few short blogs for the Global Station for Indigenous Studies out at Hokkaido. So that's been fun uh, looking at my a little bit of my take on the culture in Sapporo and and what it means to be sort of an American Indian archaeologist in Japan. A little bit different. So, I
0: bet. I bet. And then lastly, we always a- ask this question to all of our guests. Dr. Watkins, if given the chance again, would you still choose to live a life in ruins?
1: I would. I think if if I were given the chance, I would live a life in ruins, but I might live a different life. I really wanted to do experimental archeology span and I would like to to get back into doing that in some ways. I'd like to expand my traditional technology skills, but yeah, definitely, I I would live a life in ruins.
0: Absolutely, well, next time we do a, a weapons ballistic experiment, I'll keep you in mind and send an email if you want to throw atlatls at things and-
1: Would love that, that would be a blast absolutely
0: well everyone we just interviewed dr joe watkins you can reach out to him via email at uh, j at the ace and as always you can find all of uh the resources that we've mentioned uh websites that we mentioned and uh, uh dr watkins's email in the episode description And with that, uh, please be sure to rate uh, the podcast and provide us with any feedback, whichever podcast and platform you're using to listen to the show. We get your emails. We really appreciate all the feedback and everyone's amazing comments. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast, and you can also email us at Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring
1: your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer.
0: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States.